Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today we're changing things up a bit, and we have two guests on the show. A friend introduced me to the Narrative Medicine program at Columbia University, and I was completely fascinated by the program. Ben Samuel and Katherine Rogers are both professors in this program, and I'm thrilled to have them on the show today. Please note that Ben and Catherine are speaking from their individual experiences in the program in narrative medicine, and their thoughts and opinions do not necessarily reflect the official policies and positions of the Division of Narrative Medicine or of Columbia University. Now, welcome, Ben and Catherine. So happy to have you guys here. Thanks. It's really great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. I'm Catherine Rogers. I am on the faculty of the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia University, which is a groundbreaking new program where artists and writers sit side by side with doctors and healthcare workers. In that program, I teach creative writing. I myself am a writer. I studied at the Michener Center for Writers in Texas. I've been published in the Gettysburg Review. I'm primarily a playwright, and I've been teaching at Columbia since 2015. Awesome. And Ben? So I've taught with Catherine at the Columbia Narrative Medicine Program. I'm also a writer and an editor, and I've worked sort of generally in the uh, nonprofit literary arts space. So through Electric Literature, the National Book Foundation, Restless Books, Archipelago Books, the Brooklyn Book Festival, a few different organizations, basically trying to make sure that readers from all kinds of different backgrounds have access to great literature. Love that. So if you can start by just explaining to us what the program for narrative medicine is, just so that our listeners can get a sense of what it is and how it works and why yeah. it exists. Well, there is a physician at Columbia University, Dr. Rita Sharon, who is the founder and director of the program, actually co-founder, because it's an interdisciplinary program that brings together scholars and workers from uh, many fields, the philosophy, political science, medicine, the arts, literature. And when Rita was a young physician, she realized her patients were coming to her, and she was kind of getting what they were saying, but she was missing a lot. And what was she missing? She said in med school, she studied science, anatomy, pharmacology, et cetera, et cetera, but she never studied story. And when patients come, they're bringing their stories. And in fact, as the field developed, you know, we understand that doctors have stories themselves. And so to her, being able to understand story, how it works, to be able to really listen to another person's story, to be able to clearly write your own story, was a skill that was not only good for it, but essential to the practice of good medicine. So she rounded up a bunch of us in all different fields to get together, to put our heads together, and came up with this program, which is called the Program in Narrative Medicine. We have a system of workshops that was developed by Rita and her original founding members over a period of many years, since 2000, so over a period of 19 years. And we have a signature workshop that we do where we look at, um, we might look at a poem, 
and really look at it carefully, talk about it, write about it. And uh, in those small groups, doctors find that they see things they've never seen before. They hear things and stories they've never heard before. They learn how to listen through the patients better. They also have time to listen to each other. And we found by research that this particular program and method really helps doctors and healthcare workers with their own burnout and feeling better and their teamwork. And it's an expanding program that now is international in scope. So it's not just at Columbia or through Columbia, it's international. This particular brand of narrative medicine, the way it's practiced, really is a product of Columbia University and the program there. But now that there have been so many students who have gone through the training and uh, we have weekend workshops, so many people all over the world have gone through training, there are different offshoots of narrative medicine that are cropping up all over the world. Such a smart concept. And Ben, how did you get to it? I just got lucky, I guess, sort of stumbled <laughs> into it. Um, actually, a friend of mine who taught with Catherine previously sort of had an opening and she was teaching in a different section. So she brought me into the program. And I feel very fortunate to have encountered the program, but also to have seen writing and literature approach from a very different perspective. Yeah. I mean, we're not an MFA program in creative writing. And yet we take creative writing very, very seriously. And, you know, for students, whether they're doctors or professional writers themselves, to study the craft of writing, how is it put together, really helps them with their self-expression. You know, we're talking about invisible illness, to bring invisible illnesses, traumas, invisible thoughts to the page, to see them on the page. And so, although we're not a professional writing program, our serious use of writing requires people who are serious writers like Ben. And sometimes it's even better if someone comes in who's not steeped in narrative medicine and doesn't have all the preconceptions that I have about narrative medicine, but just purely uh, thinking about writing and how writing is crafted. And, and Ben's been a really great communicator with our students and helping, especially those who have no writing experience or fear of writing, who don't want to express themselves on paper for whatever reasons, really to, to guide them in doing so you know, safely and really effectively. Who are the people that are signing up for this program and why are they signing up for it? It's great. There's a whole variety, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's open to doctors and healthcare workers, but scholars in all fields. Uh, we get many students who are pre-med and undergrad, and they've just come out, and they're not ready to start med school yet. They're in their gap year. So we get a lot of gap year students who, you know, as young pre-meds, they're thinking, I want to be a doctor, but I don't want to treat diseases. I want to treat people. Mm. And how can I get more attuned to people and who they are, who I'm treating, and stay empathetic? stay connected. So we get those people. We get doctors already in practice. We get professional writers and journalists who come back. Um, we get humanities students who come out and they're not sure where they're going next, but they have a, a real commitment to this kind of alliance between medicine and what it is that they do, the communication and the arts. Get a whole range of ages and backgrounds. That's really special. I remember when I spoke to you, Ben, on the phone a few weeks ago, and I kept saying bedside manner. That was like yeah. the words yeah. that just kept coming back yeah. and back. For me, thinking about all the different health issues that I've dealt with being in the hospital, dealing with different doctors, and going, how could they be better 
yeah. at managing some of these things. Picking up the phone and saying, you have cancer and hanging up to someone <laughs> like is not really valuable and not really taking care of the person as a person. Yeah. So how is this program and the courses that you guys have taught been valuable to educate people on being better at bedside manner? What are those specific tactics? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that comes to our mind first and foremost is, you know, how can doctors be nicer to me, but still be really smart doctors who understand the science, you know, and there's that funny thing like, do I want a nice doctor or do I want a doctor who knows what they're doing? And in narrative medicine, we hope to arm people with all of the skills that make those two things not mutually exclusive, that you can get a very, very scientifically dedicated doctor who also has some of these skills of understanding story, understanding people. So I think that's, you know, part of what the program yeah, is geared to do. Absolutely. I sort of describe what I do in the program or what the program does, you know, because I have a lot of friends in the publishing community, a lot of writers, and a lot of them teach, and they teach creative writing. And so when I say that I'm teaching in this narrative medicine program, they're sort of baffled by it because they haven't maybe heard of it before. They're not quite sure what it really means. And in the publishing world, and especially in, in the side of the world where you know, you're dealing with the public at large, talking about the value of literature, it's often said that reading literature builds empathy, um, and that's a really valuable part of it. And I think that in narrative medicine, you know, teaching the students, teaching these doctors, pre-meds, um, people from all these different backgrounds, how to become more empathetic, how to listen to stories, how to become more aware of what's said and what's not said or how it's said, that's all part of the story. And so for me, that's what is really powerful and, and, and interesting about the work that the narrative medicine program is doing. And as a sort of anecdote outside of the program, when I was in college, a good friend of mine was applying to med school and you know he was the kind of guy that was he just like had his five-year plan like already knew what was going on in high school like just very driven and very sort of rigid in this life goal and so when he wrote his application essay he asked me to look it over and i noticed that nowhere in it did he say he wanted to help people hmm. right he's going to be a doctor Wow. But he wasn't talking about patients. And so, you know, we kind of worked on that element <laughs> of, of the essay. But then later he took uh, a really amazing classic literature course where students are reading Dostoevsky and Chekhov. And it really, I mean, it dramatically changed him. He'd never taken a class like that before because it was so far outside of like the classes that he thought were his, you know, essential courses. And he did become a much more sort of empathetic and perceptive person and sort of recognize more of the humanity in the work that he was hoping to do. Yeah. And um, speaking of Chekhov, I had, a, this before Ben came, but uh, there was a, a physician in my class, actually a very empathetic person. Well, we studied the plays of Anton Chekhov because Chekhov himself was a doctor. And when he creates characters and plays. There's no good guy and there's no bad guy. Every single person, even the supposed good guy in the play, has some crazy flaw. And every flawed person has a real reason for why they behave the way they behave. And so we studied that. And then all the students were asked to write some characters of their own, which she did. And later she came to me and she said, you know, she was writing this really crabby mother character. 
And she said, you know, I had to get inside that crabby mother and really write the character and really understand her. She said, do you know that helps me understand my crabby patients better? (laughs) (laughs) So it really does work. I mean, the report from the field from this particular doctor was it really did work to help, you know, doctors get such a bad rap about empathy or no empathy. And we don't really stress that word too much in official language. But, you know, it just really helped her with her practice to feel more comfortable in her practice. Yeah, I can mm. definitely think of some doctors that could use this program. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's one doctor that is affiliated with my main doctor who I adore that is really intelligent, yeah. really good at what she does but she is impossible to deal with. And she (laughs) seems to not really give a shit about people. And it's like she just wants the facts and to do her job and leave for the day. I mean, you know, when I write a play, if a scene isn't very good, nobody dies. You know, the newspaper might criticize it (laughs) and I might feel bad, but nobody's going to die. Whereas when a physician walks into a room, you know, your life is in their hands. And so, you know, it's that kind of stress. That's the other thing that um, one reason that my commitment to narrative medicine is so strong because when I see physicians actually get some comfort and some ease, before I worked in this program, even though I had an instinct that I wanted to work with people in the medical field, I had no concept close to what I have now of what it is that physicians and healthcare workers, nurses, social, what they go through on a day-to-day basis, either in their training or in their providing and the challenges that they have. And now I see, for example, another colleague and I teach a once a month, one hour workshop with fellows at Mount Sinai Hospital. And when I see these young physicians just, you know, pretty newly out on the wards and what they have to go through, one hour with us where it's only about them, this is only about you, doctor, You look at this poem, you look at this beautiful painting, just gaze at it. Now start talking about it. Now write. The writing that comes out, whether they're writing about a difficult patient that they had, whether they're writing about a childhood experience, those things, I really see an hour of respite from these really hard jobs where these people's lives are in their hands. And they need that so much so that it helps me explain why this particular physician is going 90 miles an hour with me. And it also, though, gives me some medicine for them to say, here, stop, read a poem. And it's not just frivolous. It's not just, oh, let's make the bad doctors nice. It has scientifically measurable effects on these doctors making their lives better. And with the curriculum, how do you decide what is incorporated, what pieces of work you're going to be reading about or showing, and how do you decide which kind of exercises to give to your students? What does that look like? Yeah, it changes over time. But this curriculum that we have now was designed by Nellie Herman, who is a well-known novelist and who came to our program. I don't know exactly which year she came, um, but well before I did. And she designed this creative writing curriculum, and she was dedicated to having the first year of creative writing, which is required of everybody, to be a multi-genre, meaning poetry, fiction, nonfiction. And then when I came in, we added playwriting to the curriculum so that students will have a taste of writing in all different ways. I mean, some students are just naturally geared toward poetry, toward, you know, one word. Other students are much more chatty and geared toward dialogue and theater and everything in between. So we give them a little taste of each. 
And then every year we, like, I'm dedicated to Chekhov because I love the way he creates characters. So this play is 100 years old, but we're still going to read it. <laughs> That's just me. But um, Nellie may have other works that she's more dedicated to in her class. So each of us, like when Ben came in, he brought wonderful short stories, especially to us and the poet Ocean Vuong, whom mm -hmm. I didn't even know yet. Yeah, yeah. And I tried to think of some some stories or some essays that might be particularly relevant to the medical practice. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, you know, and still, gender identity is something that's on the minds of a lot of people. And years ago, I read this great essay collection by a writer named T. Cooper called Real Man Adventures. And it's sort of a slightly experimental memoir about his process, his transition, and the kind of questions that he was asked and the struggles that he went through. And I think including something from that uh, collection in our curriculum was a really interesting way for people to talk about and understand transgender issues, you know, not quite firsthand, but as close as we could really get without having the writer in the classroom. And how else are you choosing the type of work that you're bringing in? So when people hear narrative medicine, they naturally think that we're going to be teaching all illness narratives or things that are directly related to illness and disease, trauma. All of our things, because we're human, are directly related to the fact that everyone in the room, including the doctors, has 100% chance of death. So you cannot, I don't think you can find a novel or piece of nonfiction or a poem that doesn't have something to do with that human condition. So we're not always head on, uh, right on the nose about illness narratives, although we do have a separate class in the program, which is illness narratives. So really what we're choosing is what we think are very well crafted. Like, let's look at this Villanelle by Elizabeth Bishop. Villanelle is a particularly complex and interesting poetic form. Some of our students already know that because they have MFAs in poetry. Other people stop reading poetry in fourth grade. So we look Raising really hands, carefully. Yes, right. <laughs> What's a Villanelle? How is that going to help us? Well, there's a pattern. It's like a puzzle. Let's try solving this, you know? And when a doctor goes in, that's what they're doing. The patient comes in with a story, but the story is a puzzle, and they need to know the pattern. They need to know the pharmacology of the medicine. And so that kind of mental exercise, and then trying it out themselves, um, that's only one example of what we mean by craft. But everything that we bring in is something that we believe is well-crafted and is a good example of how to write well and have some way for the students to see what are some of the tricks of writing well. We also try to get a range of cultural backgrounds, a range of time periods that our authors are writing, and just also things that are just going to be interesting for them to sit down for three hours and read mm -hmm. so they're not falling asleep. Um, so it's a whole range of why we choose what we choose. But generally, I think it's on the literary side, certainly yeah. with, with the fiction. You know, it's uh, nothing against James Patterson or right. his readers, but, you know, the concerns of one of his novels are not the same as the kinds of concerns of a more sort of literary-minded figure um, who's more in tune with the emotions and, and the sort of internal explosions rather than the external ones that are sort of blowing up through a more thriller action novel. And then every semester, we do our best to read a couple of things whose writers will be willing to come to our class. We've been really lucky with the brilliant novelist Akhil Sharma, who comes mm -hmm. every semester to talk to us about his um, novel Family Life, which is about caring for an ill family member. 
and is gorgeously written and has a lot to teach students about how novels are written. And then uh, we had a poet come in from the Netherlands one time. She was just passing through New York and agreed to come into our class because it's important for us as writers to not just see something on a page, but that the author become visible to us as a person uh, who's composing this, a person like you who's composing this work. I love how it's got so many different legs to it. Yeah. And that there's also the writing component, which it sounds like could potentially be really therapeutic for the people in the room, especially those who are doctors, as you said, who are dealing with so much trauma on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I think about personally, I've been in a writing group for four plus years, and it's all personal essays. And most of what I write or a lot of what I write is related to my health in some capacity. And it's how I manage and get through and cope, you know, what it is that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you use the word therapeutic because a lot of times when we just say narrative medicine, people will ask me, oh, is that like drama therapy that you do? And I say it's exactly not like drama therapy. There is drama therapy and there are therapists who are professionally trained to do such a thing or writing therapy or art therapy. But we're doing something a little different. And we like to say sometimes what we do has a therapeutic effect. In fact, I think it often does. But we're not trained therapists and that's not what we're doing. But Harper, what you're saying is just the act of writing and the act of really doing your best to write and to craft it well. That act can be therapeutic, can be healing. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash madevisible and entering promo code madevisible. That's betterhelp.com slash madevisible. And now, back to the show. I personally do have an invisible illness that I'm not here to talk about today, but I took our class in illness narratives, and I never wanted to talk about this illness, but in that class I did, it was a safe space, one of the few places I've ever, even though I'm a professional writer, ever talked about it. It was so therapeutic, and the scientific measures showed that I had changed by virtue of writing. And nobody in that class was a psychologist. Nobody was treating me. I was just simply writing in the way that I write, as well-crafted as I could. The other thing that happens in our class that we haven't talked about and that happens in the narrative medicine workshops we do, that's part of writing. I had a writing teacher once who said that when we write, we need to have believing mirrors. In other words, when you're in the writing class, you're not writing to a vacuum. But we give our students 
plenty of opportunity to read to each other, which is very scary at first. In fact, it's always scary, very vulnerable. But we do, sometimes they read to the whole group, sometimes they may just read to a partner, but they have lots of opportunity to read what they've written and to have it reflected back to them. And not like in an MFA program where we say, if you want this published, you're going to have to change these nouns and the verb tenses. Mm. But for us to really reflect what we've heard, what's invisible to them about what they're thinking and what they've actually put on paper. And that in itself does have a very um, sort of healing effect. It also helps with blossoming. It helps people to uh, bring their own talents to the fore and especially helps people to see what it is that they're thinking. Or, you know, some philosophers would say, you're not thinking until you actually put it out there in words. So that's another effect that our creative writing class has. Yeah. And so, Ben, your background is not in medicine in any way. So what drew you to teach a course like this and be so interested in it? You know, actually, the teaching itself is what particularly interested me in, in the course. Um, when I did my MFA program, in order to teach, you had to take a pedagogy course, which based on stories that I'd heard from my other classmates, it was not a good class, not a good way to learn about teaching, and felt like a sort of waste of time in order for you to have sort of the credentials to be in a classroom. And so I opted not to take that class and instead take more classes related to craft and literature. So I hadn't really taught before and having the opportunity to be in a class to sort of share a classroom with Catherine and engage students with, um, with literature that I've been reading, that I love, was really interesting and engaging for me. Is this the kind of thing where people want to be there? The reason I ask is I took a class at the new school four plus years ago, and it was filled with undergrads and continuing education. Mm -hmm. So there was a mix of like 18 and 19 year olds that were just getting their electives taken care of. And it was a class called Writing from Personal Experience. And there was me in my 30s looking to take a class and learn more and get better at the craft. And there was such a discrepancy of these two parties. <laughs> yeah. So are these people there because they genuinely want to learn and be better humans in the world and better writers? Yeah, it's mixed because definitely the program in narrative medicine draws people who really want to be there. They feel some kind of commitment. You know, 20 years ago, I thought there should be a place where doctors and artists sit side by side because we'd both be better at what we do. So as I said, people going to med school have a commitment. Um, doctors who are practicing who are saying, why am I so burnt out? They have a commitment to come and see if there's another way to do things. The program is very selective. They go through a rigorous interview process. And the people who are selected are those people who clearly expressed their desire to do this particular work. It's heavy duty. And you have to, as a student in the program, you have to take some classes that you're kind of familiar with and others that you have no clue. I had to take philosophy. In undergrad, I always kind of did an end run around philosophy <laughs> classes. So That was me with math. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. And so creative writing is required of every student who comes in. So therefore, we have people who go, I already have an MFA. Do I have to take this? And we go, yeah, because you don't have an MFA in why writing and medicine go together. And then doctors come in and they go, I never had to write anything but a prescription. Right. I, what does this have to do with doctoring? Get me out of here. And we're like, well, you know, <laughs> understand. So people come in with different attitudes toward creative writing. People come in with a lot of fear sometimes, or people come in with like, my MFA program was enough criticism for the rest of my life, and you know, everything in between. So it is also a mix of mm -hmm. people who want to be there and people who have to be there. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, they are coming to the class with various levels of experience with writing. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible to see the students grow and develop their craft in yeah. a very short time, especially because it really is a crash course in several different genres. Yeah. Right. And I always say it's like a one-room schoolhouse because people are coming with so many different experiences, mm -hmm. but that's what narrative medicine is, that uh, whatever I have from my background is really going to help people, is going to help the doctor, and what the doctor brings from their background is going to help me in my practice. So, How do you feel that the principles of narrative medicine can help people specifically with invisible illnesses? Well, especially the creative writing aspect of it. Um, there are three principles of narrative medicine, if you will. They are attention, affiliation, and representation. And you can read this in our book, The Principles and Practice of Narrative Medicine. And we'll be sure to link that in the show notes so people can check it out. Sure. But, you know, affiliation is what I talked a little bit about before, teamwork, people working together, hospitals. Um, attention is the ability to really listen to what's being said. And then there's representation which is what we deal with in creative writing, of representation, getting it out there, getting it on the page, saying it's telling my story. So you mentioned the act of writing makes it really real, that you have this thing and you're sort of owning that it's part of your life. We had an episode number 22 with Akila Kadeh, and recently she posted on Instagram that all of a sudden she now has a handicap sign for her car because she was in so much pain that she couldn't walk, you know, mm -hmm. long distances. And she posted about it in the sense that, like, I guess this is real. I thought this was not going to be part of my life long term, but this is sort of defining me in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing to sort of think about putting pen to paper and going, by writing this down, it's not just internal anymore. Yeah. I mean, Ben and I have had several different reports from students, things that are similar, students who might be dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder the casualties of war, uh, a physician who treats children who have experienced child abuse, and the physician gets compassion fatigue from that. And we've had these students who, over the course of a semester, have taken the liberty to write about those experiences, because we don't usually assign a topic to them, just a kind of a more general writing prompt. So when they've had a chance to write out these experiences, then they report back how they can sometimes feel lighter just after getting it on the page, and then also after sharing it with classmates who are receptive to what's being said. Yeah, I mean, it does remind me of a student who was dealing with PTSD and had been dealing with PTSD. And that student also works with others experiencing the same conditions and struggles. You know, just the way that he was able to use time. Within his prose, sort of time was able to slip in a really fascinating way. And so looking at the sort of craft of fiction allowed him to share what it was like in his experience of PTSD. Yeah, I think that giving students different forms and different ways into writing sometimes helps them reveal something invisible in a different way. So, you know, not having to write in chronological order, seeing other writers who don't do that, not having to write it all down at once, but using phrases as you do in poetry. Or another thing that we have them do sometimes is to write a nonfiction out, something that really happened to them. That's too painful. But if they can convert it into fiction, then they're really ready to share it and they're ready to get the trauma on the page because it's no longer them. It's that character. So mm. it gets out there. It gets visible, but in a more um, bearable way for them. Yeah. And I think a lot of writers experience something like this where 
a character will do something unexpected, mm. right? And you're the writer and you're supposed to be in control of the story if anyone is, right? <laughs> you know, you're the one who's typing or who has the pen to paper. And then suddenly there's an aberration and your character takes charge um, and it totally changes the course of the narrative, which can also be very frustrating if you think you know what the narrative is and suddenly it's very different. But I think on a personal individual level, when people are writing about their own experiences, it is absolutely a, a similar experience and a similar encounter with thinking that you know something and then discovering through the process of writing that it is not what you had believed it was. Right. Or sometimes, you know, when your colleagues are responding to the writing that you bring to class and they say, wow, that character just seems so unhappy. And the writer never even thought the character was unhappy. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, I had never even seen that in myself or in that character or in my own feelings. So again, it does bring things to audible and visible uh, reality. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that from writing that I've presented in a group and you get a response like, that's so not what I meant to say. <laughs> oh, maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even know that as I wrote those words on the paper. Um, so what's the most rewarding part of teaching? Well, for me, it's always like seeing the change. Like Every semester, you get to see so many changes in people, especially when you... I, this was not in narrative medicine, but it is teaching. I had a student who came to my first class, and the class was writing and performing a dramatic monologue. She came to me the first day, and she said, I just want you to know, I will never stand up in front of people and read what I've written. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's fine. So I had to quickly think, and I thought, I know what, I'll have them read to each other so she doesn't have to stand up. So they read in pairs for the first day, easing them into the swimming pool. You know, and of course, in the last day, she was the one who had like four inch high heels, bright red lipstick, swaggering up to the front of the class, <laughs> reading at the top of her lungs. So, I mean, it's not always such a dramatic change, but it's always rewarding to me when people come in either fearful about writing or maybe extremely talented in writing, and then something that they've learned from our class or from each other or just from having to sit down two hours a week and write has changed them, their writing or their insights into themselves. It's funny because I think back, I am not someone that loves being in a large group setting and yeah. getting up and raising my hand or participating. And I went to the Sanibel Island Writers Conference last November, and there was a teacher, Steve Amond, who had everyone create these character sketches. And I wrote this sketch that I felt pretty good about, but not amazing. And he said, who's willing to raise their hand and stand up and, you know, read their sketch? And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, should I do this? Should I do this? No, don't do this. And that, you know, dispute back and forth, but also going by reading this, I could get feedback that's really valuable to then be able to use the sketch towards a piece at some point. I did it. It was really helpful. I'm so glad I did it. But that inner dialogue of like, is this that scary that I shouldn't do it? Or is it that worth it that I should? Yeah. And you see that you're arming students with some other kinds of courage or finding out about themselves things that they didn't know before and finding strengths. And those, if they're a doctor, they can use that strength in the clinic. And this, to me, that's extremely rewarding. Yeah, I'm sure. And Ben, what's most rewarding for you? I mean, I do feel very similarly to Catherine, you know, watching the students grow and develop their craft and become more aware of the subtleties of, of literature and storytelling. But I was also really struck by the way that a text can have so many different meanings for so many different students and can resonate, you know, across generations or even just, you know, 
even if it's a contemporary book, you know, that so many people can um, make that empathetic leap and identify with characters, with experiences that aren't their own. And to be in a classroom with people, seeing that sort of happen live is, I just find really wonderful and inspiring. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think the work that you're doing is so unique. And when I learned about it, I was like, oh my God, I need these guys on the show. And, you know, there's so many different routes that we can take to talking about invisible illness. And the fact that you're helping people become more compassionate and more empathetic, especially doctors like clap, 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 Mm -hmm. very thrilled that you're doing this work. So where can people learn more about you and the narrative medicine program at Columbia? So there is a website, which is narrativemedicine.org. And on that website, there's a whole range of programs that are shown. The master's program is only one of them. We do weekend workshops at least twice a year. Um, We go out and about in the country and internationally. They can read some of the history of narrative medicine, and they can read all of our bios there on that website. Then also, as I mentioned before, they can get the book. If they really want to get academic and serious, The Principles and Practice of Narrative Medicine, which is co-authored by some of the founders, including Dr. Rita Sharon, of the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia. You know, another way into the Narrative Medicine Program for those who don't want to go back to school and get a master's in narrative medicine is our newly launched online certificate program. We have students from all over the world who are getting certificates in narrative medicine, and they have the same classes that you have in the master's program, except that it's um, asynchronous, online. They can do it in their own time, in their own space. And also, we have free, open to the public, the first Wednesday of every month, a guest speaker at 5 o'clock up at the med school. It's called Narrative Medicine Rounds. You can find out the calendar for Narrative Medicine Rounds by going onto our website. For example, we had the playwright and memoirist Eve Ensler, the writer of the Vagina Monologues, come to speak to us at our last rounds. So the rounds are very interesting. They're free and open to the public. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Harper. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com, follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram, and join our new online community, facebook.com slash community. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grissio for the design.